Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon and I'm here with my good friend and colleague, the one and the only John Kaplan. Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm... uh... I'm, I'm ecstatic for this uh, uh, for this segment today. Huge, huge fan of uh, of Yeti. So um, uh, looking forward for the introduction to Holly. Holly, it's great to see you again. It's great to be here. So now that you gave it away, Cap, who the guest is, Holly started her career at GE, and then she moved uh, to Cisco as the VP of Human Resources, a role today that. I think Holly people call chief people officer, chief HR officer. And then from Cisco, she became the chief HR officer at BMC Software, where she was in charge of global HR, real estate, facilities, government and community affairs, and employee and executive communication. After leaving BMC, she started her own executive consulting company, providing coaching and to executives from startups and also Fortune 500 companies on things like executive onboarding, organizational changes, job transitions. And she's currently chief HR officer at the very well-known brand Yeti. She earned her international MBA from Thunderbird University, and she serves on numerous boards, including GoodRx, Thunderbird School of Global Management, Society for the Performing Arts of Houston, and was a founding member of Cap Rock Academy. Cap, give a warm welcome to a friend of mine, very special person, Holly Castro. Hey, Holly. Um, again, I got I jumped the gun. Johnny always gets mad at me for jumping All the gun. Time. But I'm really can't keep I'm, a secret. Cap can't I know keep it. a secret. I know it. I should. He gets too. The- it gets too excited. Holly. He's always he, he can't wait. In the pregame, we're uh, for for when we put this on YouTube. I got all my Yeti uh, paraphernalia here. Huge fan, uh, huge fan of when we crossed paths back at uh, back at uh, BMC. So thanks for spending some time with us today, and I'm really looking forward to digging into your uh, expertise for our listeners. Oh, my pleasure. I'm excited to be here. Cap, do you remember meeting Holly at BMC? I do. I um uh, I can't. I can't remember exactly which engagement we had, but uh, you introduced me to her uh, back in the day. And then on the heart or on the uh, mainframe side too, I think I, uh, I think I I ran into Holly again. Yeah. Yeah. She was in charge of both. She's running, she's running around all over that place. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. No doubt. Hey, Holly, you ready to dive in a little bit with a quick question? Well, yeah. it could be a long answer, but quick question. Okay. So let's talk about the effect that the pandemic had on a lot of people, especially at Yeti. So maybe you walk through some of the challenges when you're entering the pandemic, during the pandemic, and now that you're emerging from the pandemic, can you talk about some of the challenges that you faced as a chief HR officer? Yeah, sure. Um, so maybe a little context would be helpful in terms of what Yeti is and who we are and how big we are. Perfect. Um, yeah, he was supposed to ask you that, but he he he, <laughs> he left that part out. Okay. Go ahead, Holly. Thank I'll you. Jump right in. So this yeah, you know we're hard. we're a lifestyle brand. We started sort of cups and coolers, and uh, and now we have a really broad array of products. We're based in Austin, Texas. And um, the brand itself is growing, and um, we're about we're we're approaching the two billion dollar revenue mark, and we're public. Wow. Um, when I joined Yeti, we were less than five hundred million, so it was private. We went public. It's it's been a really fun ride. The population at Yeti is about eighty percent millennial and Gen Z, so really early in career, super dynamic workforce. 
Um, and the culture at Yeti prior to the pandemic was really in person, in the office, um, and primarily in Austin. So uh, here comes the pandemic. And from one minute to the next, we went from five days a week, all day long in the office to on a dime, everybody go home. Mm. The beautiful news for us is because our population is mostly men, uh, millennial and Gen Z, they responded so incredibly well. Like it was just from one day to the next, everybody just started working from home. And it took, I would say it took the workforce maybe 10 days to adapt. Wow. Um, so really, really quick adapt, uh, you know, ability to adapt. Our sales force had been used to going to dicks or going to independent dealers and physically going out. So they had to completely rethink how they were going to sell. Um, during that period of time, 80% of our routes to revenue were closed. So, you know, you very quickly had to take a look at the workforce, figure out what we were going to do. Um, we had to make some tough decisions. We, we had a furlough. We, we ended up having to do a layoff just because the world closed down on us. But because prior to the pandemic, we were already an omni-channel business, um, it just accelerated our, our movement into e-commerce. So um, prior to the pandemic, we were probably 35% e-commerce. And then we, be, we very, very quickly became, you know, 50 and now approaching 60% of our revenue coming from um, Yeti.com and, and Amazon. And, um, you know, we, as we moved through it, we sort of took it in stages. Everybody go home, work from home. Um, I turned my team literally from one day to the next on uh, blow up the agenda. And what we're going to do is focus on the employees. We're going to focus on how do we support and help them move through this period. But we didn't know how long it was going to last. You know, it was, you know, is it going to be a month? Is it going to be two months? Oh, no, it's six months. So we, um, we really started to communicate very intentionally and very frequently with the employees we stood up a ton of training. If you guys will remember, that was also that period of time where there was a lot of social unrest in the U.S. Yep. Um, so we we sort of had to layer in our efforts around uh, DEI and and bias training and things like that. Um, and then we did a lot of pulse checks with our employees. Um, as fast as it closed, it also reopened for us. So we had to go through furloughs and layoffs, and then all of a sudden the world reopened um, and we were having to hire again. Um, so about 50% of our employees today joined us during the pandemic. Uh, wow. and, and of that 50%, a very large number of them have still never been to an office. I think that's changing now, but, um, wow. and, and we, just, we just sort of walked through it. I think our employees, um, we did not have a lot of attrition. We did not experience the great resignation last year. We'll see what this year brings. Um, but, you know, we really tried to demonstrate a ton of empathy and uh, meet people where they were. We had, you know, because of such an early, early in career population, we had a lot of people feeling a lot of isolation, a lot of people feeling um, like, you know, oh, my gosh, I've got, you know, these two little kids at home and I'm having to be on Zoom 12 hours a day now. And just just really trying to work with leadership and management to to help them learn how to to lead in that um, we've had the offices reopened now in most of the world for about a year on a voluntary basis. Um, and we, and it was voluntary for the last nine to 12 months for vaccinated folks. We've now, um, given that there's a, a lot more sort of openness in the world, we've now reopened the offices and we're, we're working in a flexible way. So our employees are all tied to a location, whether they're remote or an office. And um, we've tried to give leadership the flexibility to decide how they need to run their teams. And I was just looking yesterday and we had a full house. So what we're learning is people want the flexibility, but they also like to come back together from time to time um, to connect and be social. It's a very social culture. Um, and we've got, we just finished our uh, most recent employee engagement survey and we had incredible results. 93% of our employees responded. So um, we're not doing it perfect by any stretch, but I think we're doing a few things right. Yeah, that's cool. 
And during the pandemic, I think it caused a lot of people, you know, like you said, they were working from home and 12 hours on, you know, Zoom meetings and things like that. So it forced a lot of people to ask the question, you know, why am I doing what I'm doing? Yeah. Which really forces people as leaders to give people a purpose, right? So can you talk a little bit about how you had to try to give people a purpose in their daily work lives to get them through the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, the nature of what we do and what we produce, um, we didn't actually see a big growth pop in terms of our revenue, but what we do became really important during the pandemic. People went from, you know, going to theater, going to concerts, doing things and going outside. Yeah. So, you know, I think for our employees, um, making sure that we could help the world connect to the outdoors in a period of time where people were feeling incredibly isolated and the only kind of safe, perceived safe place you could go was outside, um, that actually gave people a lot of purpose. I think the other thing is um, what we really encouraged our leaders to do is curate an individual personalized experience. So what is meaningful for one person is not necessarily meaningful for the next. And I think that plays incredibly well with Gen Z and millennial. They don't want a peanut butter approach. They want a personalized experience. And so really spending the time to connect with humans during this period of time to understand what their purpose needed to be versus here's the corporate speak about what the purpose should be. And, and, and that, by and large, I think that worked pretty well. Yeah, you keep talk, touching on millennials and Gen Zs. Um, do, you, do you see that they're motivated by the same things or completely different things? Is there some overlap, a little Venn diagram? What, what, do you, what are you seeing? Well, Gen Zs early, early in the workforce. So I don't know that we know that much about them yet. They're just starting into the workforce. Um, you know, I, I think one commonality is they grew up with technology. Some of them were born with technology, yeah. but they all grew up with it. And so their version of focus and concentration is pretty different than I think some of some of the, um, you know, Gen Xers or, or baby boomers. Um, I, I take my daughter as an example. She's 18. And at any point in time, she's looking at a TikTok. She's got music going on. She's doing her forensics paper, uh, you know, texting with someone and that's normal to them. I and know, but you always wonder if they're really listening to what you're saying. At the fair. Same time. Totally fair. <laughs> totally fair. Totally fair. Um, but they do work, I would say in much, um, much sharper sound bites than maybe, you know, someone who has learned to listen for two hours to something. Their, yeah. their world is different in that way. Mm. Um, you know, I think the other the other thing that we're noticing is it is, you know, they, they watch their parents spend maybe a career or a lifetime at a place and then potentially lose their jobs with no care. And so I think they've made a decision. And, and this is a blanket statement that I'm not sure is perfectly accurate for every single one of them. But they're sort of putting themselves and their um, individual agenda first. And the faster you can understand that um, and then try to have a two-way conversation about what's good for you and then what's good for the company, um, it's a more productive conversation versus let me tell you what you need to go do and go do it. Yeah. Do you think because of that, you know, there was a generation that had one job and got the gold watch and retired. Then, you know, people had, you know, three jobs and then people had like, you know, seven, eight jobs during their careers. Do you think that the millennials and Gen Z's are going to have like 15 jobs during their lives? No doubt. Yeah. You do? The, da- the data says that they will have somewhere between 17 and 25 jobs during the course oh, of their lives. 17 to 25 jobs. Amazing. But what I think is going to be really interesting as we watch them go along, I think they're going to completely do different careers. I think this notion that you start in one career and you have to do that career for the rest of your life is gone. So when I came to Yeti, one of the things I said is, we know you have a choice of where you work. 
we want to keep we want to keep you here as long as we can and keep you excited and engaged but make no bones about it we're not i i i don't have my head in the sand thinking i'm going to keep these people for 15 or 20 years it's those days you might have one or two but i don't think i don't think as a workforce that is a a realistic equation anymore what do you think is the motivating factor for most of them to make a jump? Do you, again, you said that they're putting themselves first. I get that piece. But then is it be, because they're developing themselves more or changing careers into something else that's more interesting as you evolve through life? Um, I think it depends on where they are, sort of are, where are they in their 20s? Where are they in their 30s? You know, different life stages demand different things. Sure. Um, okay. Social media is a powerful force. So when they perceive their peer group to be, you know, making more money or having a bigger title, mm. that has a huge influence on how they think about themselves. Um, in some cases, I would say it's definitely about the work. But in other cases, I would say, you know, we're seeing people make moves either coming to us or leaving us um, because they can, they can just make a lot of, of money someplace else. Um, now, what I think is also interesting is as they go along in life, like anything else, the value set starts to shift a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, as they start to have kids, they think maybe a little bit differently about um, the moves they would make. Um, as they get married, they think a little bit differently. Or as they have a partner, as they buy a home, those kinds of things come into so, play. So, Holly, one of the things I'd like you to talk to a little bit is thinking about our listeners. And me too, I struggle with this, is that, <clears throat> so I'm, you know, 59 years old, and I think about what loyalty meant for a company, for a leadership team, for people that you hire. And it's not that the concept of loyalty has changed but how people express their loyalty, I think is changing. And I've talked to a lot of people that are around my age and Johnny's age. And when they struggle a little bit with trying to build this culture and, and they, it's a, like a personal, um, it's a personal letdown when people leave a company and I think it's really unrealistic now because you said there's a whole new generation of workers that, that are, it's not that they're not loyal. It is the way that they express their loyalty or what, what they're being loyal to uh, is, has changed. So can you give some advice to companies out there that are listening and you know, how to really deal with the fact that your employees, just more of your employees are gonna, you know, there's bad things like churn and there's all these metrics out there that people are really focused on. And I think we might be missing the boat a little bit on reality and expectations of people coming in and out of companies. I thought that was a mouthful. Sorry about that. But I've, I've heard you speak on it before. Would you, would you give us some advice around that? I don't know if I have any advice, but I'll tell you what I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think the mindset about what loyalty means, the first thing to check in on is what is my mindset about loyalty? When I say loyalty, does that mean no one ever leaves me? No one, uh, people are going to stay with me forever as a leader. Um, or does loyalty mean something different? You know, I've had to work on my own mindset and come, become, you know, I, I think I used to think like no one ever leaves me. I, I build a team of right. people that are so loyal to me. I'll be the first one to leave. Um, and then they'll come with me. Well, in many cases, that is true. But, but I think my mindset about loyalty has changed now. And it's more about having an honest conversation. I've said to my team and I talk to them every week about this, you know, somebody's going to leave. Who's going to leave? What do we need to do to re-recruit them? And this re-recruitment process needs to be frequent and it needs to be personal. Um, it's so hard to find talent in this in environment right now um, you know, losing good talent is, is sort of, it becomes the game, trying not to do that. And so, um, but, but I think there's a mindset change that needs to happen, which is people will move on and how they handle that is the most important thing. How much lead time they give you, have they signaled to you? Are you surprised? Are you like blown away? But my mindset has changed around how long people will actually stay. 
Yeah. Like they're going to stay with me forever and they're going to follow me forever. And, <laughs> and then, I don't know if that's necessarily true anymore. I've also heard you say about the leavers, if that's not a really good way to say it, but about the employees who decide to, to leave, I've heard you give the advice that says how you leave can be just as important as what you've done while you're there. So we have a lot of listeners that are in the middle of transitions and, and could, could you give some insight around that thought process? Yep, it's, um, it's something that I really believe in. How you leave is more important than actually everything you did because it's the only thing people will remember about you. Mm-hmm. So are you honest and transparent? Are you having authentic conversations? Are you putting a good plan in place that leaves the organization, your team and the organization in the best possible stead possible? Um, are, you, are you making the conversation about you or are you making about them? It needs to be about them. It is not about you. It is about who you leave behind. You've made the decision to go on and you're going to do great and it's going to be wonderful. But those people that are that you're leaving behind, they, they have an experience of that. You know, um, I've, I've really tried over the course of my career and I have not gotten this right every single time, but when I leave now, anytime, just really trying to be really mindful and thoughtful and, and intentional about um, the legacy I leave behind. And um, I think, if, if you can learn, it doesn't matter where you are in your career. I said this to my daughter the other day. Okay. So at some point you're going to quit a job. And when you do that, how you do it, which, which hill you decide to take, are you going to be a pro or are you going to be a loser? Like yeah. you've got a decision. You can personally, no matter how they react, you can personally make that decision for yourself. And what I find is um, the other thing people underestimate is, is how small the world is. Um, mm, yes. You know, I get uh, probably 10 to 15 front door and back door references on any given week. Hey, do you know this person that you worked with 20 years ago, 15 years ago, five years ago? You know, I mean, people, people get those calls. And so how they remember you is important. Yeah. And Holly, now you touched, can we touch on recruiting a little bit? Cause you talked about, you know, people are constantly going to leave. There's the millennials, the Gen Z's. Are you doing it? And, and people will surprise you. Like Johnny has a saying that, you know, someone's going to get demoted and they could leave. Someone's going to get promoted and they could leave your team and somebody's going to surprise you. It's Johnny's rule of three, which is very true. So is there anything special that you're doing that Yeti in your, you know, recruiting process or recruiting profiles to be able to attract people and, uh, and, make, and hold, those, hold on to those people? Yeah, so the pace of recruiting has sped up. Um, we're in consumer, but we we attract and we lose talent to tech because we're in Austin. A lot of the people that I'm hiring are out of tech, and a lot. But when we lose people, they frequently go to tech. Um, so we've tried to get very efficient with our process. One of the things I tried during the pandemic that we've kept since the pandemic is team interviews. It took a little bit of work to get the teams working really well together. But what we were hearing from the candidate is you guys have a really intense interview process. We have to go through a lot of people. And my response to that is, yes, we every hire we view is precious. We're not a very big company. So um, we want to get it right because when we don't get it right here, it's you, you feel it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, somebody yeah. comes in, they stay for six, 12 months and then they leave. It's a problem. So uh, especially senior folks. So what we were hearing from candidates is, you know, I have to go through 10, 15 interviews. It's grueling. It's awful. And I was like, okay, how can we make this more efficient, but still get what we need as a company? And so we started doing these team interviews. So now a candidate goes through maybe six or seven interviews, but we've got pairs and the teams work beautifully together. Um, So we worked on that. Um, can you, before you move off that, can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, my son just went through an interview process uh, successfully, which was awesome, but he was, uh, it was a panel interview. It was in, uh, in data at, at a large bank. Um, and it was a panel interview 
And um, I don't think um, he was prepared for, it was a great outcome, thank God, but I don't think he was prepared for that. And um, it, I'm not always sure that the people on the panel are always prepared for what their role is. So I love what you're saying is, because it takes us too long to hire people too, and especially in this, at force management, in this era that we're in. But could you talk a little bit more about like the more of the mechanics around putting the right people on the panels, making sure people understand their roles. We got to vet the person through the process, but we also have to recruit them in the process of that. You know, we got to sell them a little bit. We got to vet them. What, what advice do you give companies? I love your advice about putting more people on an interview because it'll speed it up. But what advice can you give about role definition, who's doing what, when, and to get a great outcome? And to the interviewers, how do they prepare to be the interviewees? How do they prepare to be the best candidate in that process? Yeah, so on the on the company side, um, one of the things we implemented during the pandemic, which we will keep forever, I love it, is we, we, we pick the panel and we pick the pairs. So we're really, really intentional about what's the, who's on the panel and who's in the pairs. Then we have a briefing and everybody has to attend it. And the hiring manager, we sort of interview the hiring manager out loud in front of the group and get the group asking questions. Also, which companies do we want to target? Where do we think, what, which profiles should we avoid? Um, you know, all the questions that you, when you read the job description might be in there, but might also not be in there. Yeah. The other thing we're looking at is which, okay, as we look at the team and we have this one role, what are the skill sets that we need or capabilities that we need to balance out and round out the teams? So we're really trying to look at that. Um, and then we and then we encourage the pairs to get together. Who's going to open? Who's going to close? Um, what's really interesting is we spend a lot of energy trying to make sure they understand you have to make the candidate feel comfortable. They Remember for us, they're also our customers. They, we want them to yeah. go buy a lot of Yeti product, right? So if they have a crappy experience with us in the interview process, they, not only are they not going to be happy about either the job, but they, they also might not buy from us anymore, which is problematic for us. So um, we want everybody who comes through here to have a good experience. And so we've given them very specific instructions about how to chunk their time. We found that 45 minutes for a, a pair is too short. Um, some pairs want an hour and 15, um, but usually it's about an hour for two people. We don't do three or four or five on one um, because we don't feel like we can, we can create a good experience for the candidate. Um, so we're, we're pretty swift about getting those stacked and, and pretty intentional about who goes first, second, third, fourth, fifth. And then at the end of the process, we do a debrief with the whole interview team where we get and every single person has already submitted their feedback. We give an executive summary of what the feedback is. And then each person talks. It's not a consensus, but what I would tell you is the quality of feedback that's come back for every single hire. Now, I think if you're hiring 10,000 people, it's different. Right. We're not hiring 10,000 people. Um, but, you know, we're hiring 1,000, you know, it's, it's not a small amount. Um, that's working. That's totally working. And then I would say the, one of the big challenges right now is if we physically need somebody to move, candidates are less willing to move right now. Yeah. Uh, and so having a lot of thought up front of, can we have this ro remote uh, role be remote? Who do they have to collaborate with? How frequently do they have to setting that up front so that we don't get surprised at the end and the other thing we're testing along the way with every single candidate is what are their expectations around comp? What are their, ex have they talked to their spouse or their partner? Um, are they on board? At some point in many times in the interview, we stop recruiting the candidate and we start recruiting the spouse or the partner. And we're really laser focused in what does he or she need? What do they need to get comfortable? If we're asking them to move, what do we need to know about the kids if they have kids? Do they have any special circumstances that are important? Like that seems like a lot of care, but that's what's required right now. Yeah. And then and how then about for, sorry, Johnny. Sorry, just going back to the interviewers. 
do they know specifically what they're probing for? Or they just do they, you know, this person's going after skill set, this person's going after experience, somebody's going after knowledge or character. Yeah, so we give do they them know what they're what avenues they're going down, or is they just a uh, no, no, no. We're actually quite intentional about that. So our values are embedded in our um, sort of career competency. Each team is given a competency that they are supposed to test um, that align up to our leadership competency. So we've embedded that all the way through. So they're really intentional about, you know, I'm supposed to test for this area. Now, I would tell you the more seasoned recruiters or interviewers, they are they're testing for their competency area, but they're also testing probably for many of the others. And you see that when they come. The other thing that we've done is newer leaders, we we tend to pair them with more seasoned interviewers. So like I have a a newer leader um, on the executive team right now, and this person hasn't done much executive interviewing. We're pairing that person with somebody who's a little bit more seasoned. And I think that's a, it's a good way to teach and learn. Completely. How about for the interviewee, advice, insights, trends that you're seeing that could be helpful for interviewees to stand out in this environment today? One of the things I'm noticing right now is I think I think this is a product of the pace of how much volume there is out there for candidates. People are coming to the table ill-prepared. So it really stands out to me either when somebody's ill-prepared or when they're really prepared. Um, and so when, when I tell someone to prepare for an interview, it is like 360. You know, you, you go, if they're public, you go pull all their financials, you read their proxy, you understand how they compensate, you understand how their competitors are. If, if you can go do a demo, you go do the demo, you, you get your interview schedule in advance, Look at every single person. Go look them up on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok, if, if that's where they are. Um, see if they've got any, get a feel for who you're going to be meeting with. Um, the, the number one thing I can say right now is I'm finding candidates presenting fairly ill-prepared. Wow. Incredible. And do you have in your sourcing, there's a bunch of debates about Johnny and I have conversations all the time about how we used to feel if we were hiring managers, we own the recruitment process and we very much respected what your organizations did, what, uh, what people organizations and talent organizations did. But at the end of the day, you own it. Yep. Um, give us some insight in, cause you're also talking about preparedness. And so there's this sourcing of candidates and there's this bringing people to the table and uh, how much do you point them in the direction to help them from a preparedness uh, standpoint without giving away answers and, and, and that type of thing. First question I want you to answer is um, your views on who should own it. And I really want to hear everybody else we talk to outside of your organizations, they always say the sales leaders should own it or the department leaders should own it or what have you. Give me your uh, insights on who owns the hiring process in a company. Well, my answer is probably going to sound really simple. At the end of the day, the person is coming to work for you. They're not coming to work for my team. So my team's job is to create a world-class process that enables both the hiring manager and the candidate to find a good match. But they're coming to work for the hiring manager. Um, So the more the hiring manager owns it, the best examples I would give is when um, a hiring manager is like, what about this profile? What about this profile? Like they're spending their own time sourcing their network, sourcing LinkedIn. So, you know, just, oh, I met this person at a conference or I met this person on a plane. Those are the hiring managers, in my opinion, that own it the most. Um, so, you know, I think the hiring manager owns it, but that isn't that doesn't let the HR or the people organization off the hook. They've got to they've got to deliver a good process. Um, I think the the advice that my team can give is a very good sense of what's happening in the market, what we're seeing from a comp standpoint, what we're also seeing in terms of dynamics. Um, they can be good coaches to how a hiring manager positions 
um, information. And, and frankly, sometimes they can be a buffer because what isn't very fun for the hiring manager is the first engagement with their hopefully new employee is this horrible negotiation around money. Yeah, um, yeah you want to see, especially if they're in sales, you want to see that they can negotiate. But at the same time, you know, that, that just doesn't set the relationship off to be the best, in my opinion. Mm, that's a good point. Hey, Holly, um, do a little transition here. If that's okay, Cap. Yeah, please, buddy. You're in charge of ESG at Yeti, right? That's yep. what I just, I read. And um, so first, can you educate our audience on what ESG is? Yeah. Because I think they think some of them actually know and actually some think that they know and some probably don't know. And then why companies are concerned with their you know, ESG reputation. I mean, ESG is, a, is the new sort of acronym for sustainability or CSR. So ESG is environment, social, and governments. And in the environment piece, it depends really on which company you're in. This may, or, this may be a bigger or smaller piece of the, the work. If you're in an energy company, obviously you're producing energy and oil and all that. That's going to be a big piece of the work. Um, social, especially in tech, is a big piece of the work, and that has to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and the thought there is that the more diverse and equitable the environment, the better business results. I still think that there is a lot of work investors are doing to prove that out. Um, and then governance is how the company is governed. What, you know, what does the board look like? How, how, is, the, you know, how is the company governed in both, both by the management side as well as, um, as, well as the board? Um, the reason you're starting to hear this buzzword, if you will, more investors have actually started to make um, take some pretty strong positions about where they're going to invest as it relates to ESG. Yes. Um, and I think that has made that has sort of moved the priority up. I think there's also a lot of concern about what's happening on the planet and, um, you know, uh, how fast or slow we are moving to remedy some of the issues. Um, ESG at Yeti is new. So the good news is we've kind of been doing it for a long time, but we are um, new in a formal way. And so we build durable products that are sustainable and that's pretty awesome. Um, but we've, we're really new on our journey. We've, we produced our first ESG report uh, just this last year. We set goals out to 2030, um, and we were really intentional about how we went about it. The executive team spent an inordinate amount of time deciding on the goals. So it wasn't sort of lip service. We were, um, there was just a huge amount of focus and influence on how we were going to get to those goals. Were they goals that we could achieve? You know, in some cases, I think you've got companies setting goals and the leadership team doesn't have any intention of actually being there. <laughs> so we were really, really intentional about saying, okay, let's set goals that are aggressive, but also achievable um, that, that we know we, whether we're here or not can be delivered on. Um, the other thing I think is really interesting about how we go, we do a lot less talking and a lot more doing, and then we talk about it. So an example is when I started in 2018, 20% of the leadership as well as um, the workforce, 20% of the leadership force was female. Um, very quietly, we just started doing the work. And today, nearly 50% of the leadership team is female and 50% of our board is female. So we didn't talk about it. We just did the work. Um, what is that work? Because it's so... I mean, it, it, it has to go beyond, but those are results. Like, especially when Yandi and I, the more immediate results and plus the demographic of the people that you're recruiting from what it sounds like 80, 85% of the people that you're recruiting, they're going to care about the answers to ESG and DE and I. How did you go about doing the work on the DE and I side, diversity and uh, engagement and inclusion and to get those types of shifts in, in metrics. Yeah. I mean, the first thing we did is um, we sort of had a two prong approach. One, 
who do we have inside that we need to develop and grow? And so let's go focus on those folks. And we did that. The second thing was every single candidate slate must be diverse. Like there's no if, ands, or buts. I'm not saying the outcome has to be diverse, but if we put if we put no diverse candidates in front of hiring managers, guess what they're not going to do? They're not going to hire That's diverse right. candidates. So put diverse candidates in the hiring slate. Um, and then what you start- well, How do you get, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. This is so, I have so many conversations around this. Many times the hiring managers, if they're not, don't have access to pools of diversity or what have you, then we say, go get candidates that are diverse and people's networks may or may not be diverse. What great advice or insights or feedback do you have on how do you go get access to those diverse candidates? Yeah, there's there's a few technologies that are really helpful. Um, we used a technology called Eightfold, which was great in terms of helping us think about, you know, just, just a scraping technology to help us um, look at pools. Um, and we just really laser focus our recruiting team on all of the different places in LinkedIn, as well as um, educational networks that that you can find diverse candidates in. So, you know, it's not without effort, but um, that's how that's how we focused our, our teams. Um, and then one of the things I notice is when you start to bring in more diverse people, they start to bring in more diverse people. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so when you start at the leadership level and you start really working it there, it, it has a downstream effect. It's a very natural downstream effect. The other thing that happens is when your group, your team starts to look more diverse, people can see themselves there. And so they want to come to your environment. Great advice. Thank you. And Holly, I know that this ESG this actual mutual funds now that just invest in highly rated ESG companies. Does every company get an ESG rating? Uh, I don't know that every company, public companies, public companies definitely do because there's a couple of rating agencies. There's three of them actually that yeah. give you a grade. Um, and, uh, you know, the invest, the investment community is starting to look at that more and more for public companies right. on the right. private side. I think it's really more dependent on who the investors are. Um, but I think it's something that over time companies are going to have to focus on. I think the, the interesting moment we are right now in time is setting goals and reporting on those goals in a tangible way that isn't inaccurate. So setting goals that are doable and then not fudging the results. Like the results have to be, you know, they have to be real. And there's a lot of press out there for some companies that have published results that they can't back up. Let's talk about Yeti as a brand. I mean, it's a big, I mean, it has a big name. You say Yeti and people know it. And so what do you think drive and people love it. So what do you think drives that love for the Yeti brand? Can you give people some insight on that? The way we've gone about building this brand is really interesting. It took it, and you have to kind of, when you're inside, when you come in, especially if you're not from this industry, you have to spend some time being a student of how they, how did they do this? Um, and it's a depth and breadth strategy that took time. So when they built communities and ambassador communities um, across different pursuits, um, they did it in a really thoughtful way. So they went sort of authentically deep and you pick the hunting community, the fishing community, the skate community, um, the, the, the barbecue and the, and the, you know, there's a whole new um, sort of, sort of set of communities that are focused on cuisine and, and cooking over fire. Um, but those relationships are built over time with those ambassadors. Um, we get to know them really, really well. And they tend to be amazing experts in their field. Of course. Um, what's really interesting about how we built these communities with our ambassadors is they're willing to do amazing things for us. So the example I would give you is when we were going through um, all, you, you remember all of the horrible things that were happening um, in the Asian community around hate and hate crimes. We asked six of our ambassadors to get on a panel in front of our, all of our yetizens and just talk about their experience of being Asian. And 
they were willing to give us an hour, which just brought, you know, it's just brought that in-house, that thing that we're doing outside. Um, you know, Yeti's kind of a humble brand. We don't, um, we don't go out and do a bunch of Super Bowl ads. That's just not how we go about it. But the, the, the stickiness that we create in the communities where we sell and, and that's just sort of proliferating um, has been, I think, really a, a big, powerful part. And then we do things that are unusual, like we make Getty Presents films that are really interesting. Um, so it's, it's a multi-pronged approach to how they built the brand or how we've built the brand. Um, and it's evolving. I, I said, when I got here, there's no, there's no women in your imagery. It's all a bunch of guys. Um, and now you see a lot more yeah. females, which is, yeah. is really cool. And you're seeing a lot, you know, I think the diversity um, has been there, but now we're really seeing it in, in terms of our ambassador community of all races and ethnicity and genders. Yeah. And Holly, you've been in, what's interesting, you've been in mainly B2B companies for a long period of time. Right. And now yeah, this is my first B to C. Right. So you switch into a B to C. Is there anything that stands out or a couple things that stand out as like, wow, it's completely different in this B to C company than it was in all the B2B companies? When you go to a cocktail party, sometimes they don't know what you do if you're in a B2B company. Yeah. Uh, yeah when you go right. to a cocktail party and you're with a company like Yeti, they know it and they have an opinion about it. Um so I would just say, you know, the, the sort of incredible reach of people that you would interact with in just everyday life in a B2C company, um, it's just bigger. And so, mm -hmm. you know, for me, that, that gives me a tremendous amount of pride in terms of, you know, I, I work for a company that puts amazing products out into the world and takes a lot of care. And that is a little different than when you're in a B2B company. Yeah, but the... The way in which you manage internally and even externally, those those types of initiatives, they're they're pretty much the same, whether it's B2B. Yeah, they're very, very similar. I think yeah. your social strategy on a B2C company is probably a little different. How you're dealing with social media and and um, you not to say that you on a B2B company, you may have a social strategy as well. It's just your audience tends to be a lot bigger when you're when you're B2C. Yeah. Hey, so, I have a uh, go ahead, Cap. Go. I have a. Um, you have great experience in your career background. When people are thinking about their career backgrounds, I heard you talk about this on a podcast. Um, I'd, I'd like to just spend a few <clears throat> moments talking about your advice around career pathing and advice. And you said when you're unhappy look within before you look outside to really understand what motivates you. Could you, it, it, so there are, you know, we're talking about a lot of different um, generations. We've talked about that today. We've talked about things that are important from a culture perspective. Um, speak to us as if you're giving advice to, you know, your children or your best friends or what have you. Um, how do you own your own career today? The first place I have people start is what, what are your values? Do you know what your, your personal values are? What makes you tick? And when they're out of alignment, like what's happening? Like if you don't know what those values are, that's the very first place to start. And I always encourage people to have, write them down. Don't just keep them in your head. Everything I do, I say, write it down. You don't have to share it with anybody. It's just for you. So know your values. When you're thinking about making a change, be very clear about what you're going toward. What are the conditions that need to be present versus what you're going away from? Great advice. Um, if you can get clear about what you're going toward, the, 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 the more clear you are about the thing you're going toward, the, the better probability you'll have of landing that. In my experience, careers aren't linear. Sometimes things show up and you're like, oh, I don't know, this is kind of risky. You know, do the assessment of your calculated risk, but sometimes the most unorthodox thing that shows up will be the thing that um, is, the, is the best growth for you. 
And um, I think sometimes, especially earlier in career folks, they're looking for this really linear path. And, yeah. um, you know, you go A and then you go B and then you go C. Sometimes that works. But I would say in today's world, that's less and less. So be open to things that might not be linear. The other thing is, and I personally can speak to this, um, sometimes we're so ambitious and we want to keep going. So, you know, going up and the best the best move sometimes can be to go sideways to make yes. sure that you've got the skills that you need so that you can catapult and go up. I skipped a couple of spots in my career because I was ambitious and I wanted to move up. And I regretted that. I, today, I think I've, I've gotten to the place where I don't regret it anymore, but I spent a lot of years trying to staff around my gaps because I skipped some two or three really pivotal experiences in, in my discipline, in my craft. Um, so I think sometimes taking a, a side move to get a certain set of skills is really important. And I think that's getting lost a little bit in this. I want to move up and I want to, you know. Are there opportunities too, Holly, for this concept of job crafting? A lot of times I talk to people and they're like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this company because of what I'm not getting in this company. And I always ask the same question I ask. Well, are you sure you can't get it in your current company? It's like, oh, it's, I don't, it's not a part of my job. And I'm like, do you have the ability with the way the workforce is today? Do you have the ability? I don't know if that's, is it still a topic called job crafting or where you have the ability to kind of influence where if you're a valuable enough employee and there's some skill sets or things that you want to get that you have the ability to, to go to your employers and, and say, this is what I'm looking to kind of get. And, and uh, I don't, I feel like I have to leave the company to do it. Is there an opportunity? Talk to me about what the reality is. That still is, is, is that still real today? Absolutely. I mean, my experience is great people. What, what happens with people that are really good is an organization will tend to want to give them more, whether it's in their job description or not. Yeah. If that's not happening for you and you want that and you want to still stay at the company, make it known. I always say nobody cares about your career as much as you do. I care about everybody's career at my company, but nobody cares about it as much as you do. And so if you don't go talk about and advocate for what you want in a diplomatic and respectful way, don't, you know, my, my advice is, you know, honey's better than vinegar. Without um, entitlement. <laughs> Yeah, without entitlement. Yeah. Um, but but you have to make it known if if you're looking for certain things. I, I mean, I remember when we were talking about putting ESG in place at, at Yeti and I went to the CEO and I said, I have a lot of passion about this and I want to I want to lead it. And he was willing, willing to give me a shot at doing that. And I think it's turned out well. Um, but if you don't make your intentions known, they can't read your mind. Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of times people too, Holly, have to be really self-aware. You know, like part of it is writing your values down, but another part is, you know, what do people say about you when you're not around? Like, what are your yeah. positive behavioral traits and what are some of the behavioral flaws that you have that you need to get better at or cover for? And and I find a lot of times, especially younger people, they're not so self-aware of what their positive and negative behavioral traits are. I totally agree with that. And I think the other thing is be mindful of your ambition versus your constitution. So uh, I'm, I'm experiencing this right now with a number of people where they have these huge ambitions, but they actually don't have the constitution to do what they say they want to do, their makeup, their DNA. they're not going to, they're not going to make it there in my opinion. And so just being, that that doesn't mean you're a failure. It means there's probably a different path for you. So figuring out which path is where you're going to find your joy and where you're going to be really good. I think that's um, that self-awareness is so important. I I always tell my daughter, go where you're loved. You know um, I think a lot of times we, we want to be in something. We think we want to be in something, but that might not be the place that, is where you're going to, you're going to enjoy yourself the most and you're going to do your best work. 
Right. Sometimes it's a title, but you don't know what does that person actually do in day-to-day operations in that title, right? Sometimes I give examples like firefighters. Okay, they're they're paramedics and you know, policemen are doing domestic abuse and traffic lights, you know. And like I have a friend that does audio and video company, but he pulls wires. I mean, so you have to really ask yourself what's behind that title and what those people actually do on a day-to-day basis. And is that something to your point that I have the constitution to do? And sometimes as you go up the ladder, wow, there's a lot of confrontations. Every day seems like somebody or something is confronting you. And a lot of times people don't have that constitution to be able to be in those battles day in and day out. Yep. Yeah. I, yeah, I love Johnny. There's so many golden nuggets here, man. I'm no, trying to Holly's go through. amazing. But, I told she's you. unbelievable. Yeah. Oh, you guys are too kind. No, we've covered so much ground. Do you mind if I do just a quick summary and then um, and sure. then see if I left anything out? Um, I loved. We began the conversation really kind of talking about the pandemic and your response to that. Um, we, I, I want to attach another. Um, a reference that you made to the things that you did that we didn't really get a chance to talk about, but your software background allowed you to apply, apply agile to the pandemic problem. And you actually, you actually brought in the concept of, you know, like you're writing code and an agile process to uh, for the pandemic. I thought that was awesome. Um, you talked about 50% of your current employees joined during the pandemic. That's a phenomenal, when I think about that, that is an unbelievable statistic in so many ways, like your ability to get people to work, um, your ability to uh, bring people on quickly, uh, especially during that time, I think is just uh, uh, amazing. Talked a little bit about um, uh, return to work and that I think the reality is I don't think there's any absolutes right now. I get a lot of people asking me questions about, hey, John, you know, do we just make it an absolute? And I say, well, I, I don't think so. I think you're going to have to figure out what the culture best supports and, and what's needed. Uh, and I thought you gave some great advice on it's probably being flexible in these times and figuring out what the new dynamic is. Uh, people, uh, you talked about people want flexibility but they also need the social aspect. We found that that's the biggest challenge of remote work, remote delivery, remote interacting with our clients. People are digging sometimes the ability to be remote, but they're definitely not digging the lack of social and camaraderie. So I thought that was a really cool topic that we talked about. You talked about in the uh, uh, curating a personalized experience at work. I know that you've talked, we do that with our customers, but I like your point of view that said you have to do that with your employees. It's just as important to do that with your employees. Johnny and I are both kind of blown away with this 15 to 20 probability of 15 to 20 jobs on average of new people coming into the, uh, into the workplace. And we talked about how loyalty is kind of redefined and how you leave is more important than what you've done. And you talked about the world being a very, very small place. Loved your concept on team interviews um, and purposeful pairs and role definition and um, your interview process. I think this is one that people really get messed up, Johnny, is the interview process is a walking audition for your culture. How you interview people is going to give them really, really good insight into what it's going to be like to work there, or it should. Uh, it, should, it, should be. it should. And and then you talked about just preparedness, uh, uh, good advice. If it's been in print, you should have expect to have read it. Um, if you're going to interview for a company, look up your people you're interviewing with. There's so much access to, to information about people in social media, LinkedIn, um, I loved your advice for hiring managers. They're coming to work for you. Use the people organization for process and insights and buffers and those types of things. But <clears throat> you, nobody should care about it more than you as the hiring manager. I'm still going here. So give me, give me some time here. 
Brandon Baxter. Hang on, Brandon Baxter. I'm raising my hand. I might not be on the diversity side, but we can figure something out. I know it. I want to be a brand ambassador for Yeti because I love the products. Um, I loved where you talked about really specifically, make sure you're running to something and career progression versus away from something. Your, your thought process is about being excited about what you're going to, not being more concerned about what you're leaving. Some Life isn't linear. These jobs aren't linear. Sideways is sometimes a, 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 great, um, a great opportunity for you to gather those skill sets. Um, I thought that was really, really great advice. Be mindful of your ambitions versus your constitution. That one I loved. I'm, I'm writing that one down, man. I hear I'm a lot stealing of stealing that one. It's yeah, that's yeah, good, Johnny. That. The people that run around, they rally the flag. I've done it myself, and I care so much about something. Yeah. And then when I actually think about my own constitution to go make a change in that, um, you know, if you, it's kind of like be the change that you want to see in the world, Holly. And if you're, if you want to start with yourself there. I yeah, you're really up awesome. for it. <laughs> That's what I heard you say. I loved it. Setting goals that are doable on the ESG and DEI. We could have a whole uh, another podcast with you on that. I think companies are really struggling with this right now. Um, my company went through it. It was not easy for us. It was so related to the culture of the people inside the company, not just what we were saying to the outside world. It was what we were also saying to our company yeah. and making sure that everybody, uh, everybody was a part of that. Johnny, what I leave out? No, you did a, you did a phenomenal summary. Phenomenal. Wow. There was right. a lot. To, there's a lot, lot of nuggets there, and so many good nuggets. It was, it was, it was awesome. All right, what I'm going to do, if you're up for it, Holly, can I just take you through a little fun, little rapid fire, and then Johnny's got a more specific question that we want to give you an opportunity to speak to our listeners about. But I'm just going to go through just a quick little rapid fire that's just some fun questions. Are you ready? Yep, let's do it. Ideal day off of work. Okay, this is not going to sound super interesting. Uh, I lived in Italy for almost six years. So yeah. my ideal day off is do, you know, cooking all day, an amazing meal for my loved ones and my friends, and then having, you know, a, a, an amazing meal. So it'll be, you I know, homemade pasta with ravioli and a 12 hour sauce and antipasto and things like that. I love that. Where did you okay. live there, Holly? Where where did you live? If I can... uh, Florence and Rome, primarily. Oh. Nice. Wow. nice, nice, nice. Yeah, Johnny and Johnny and team stuck. I can't say that. I can't say where I lived in Europe because I don't want to alienate anybody. So <laughs> I like where you went. <laughs> I'm going to stop it at that. By the way, what, I think Holly, you can speak. Like, you're fluent in like five different languages, right? That's your education background too, though, isn't it? You have like, don't you have, don't you have specific something in like uh, language studies? Yeah, I have an undergraduate in something super useful, simultaneous and consecutive interpreting of French and Italian. I had that written down, but I didn't know how to ask you about if, it. If you want to be an interpreter, that's really helpful. But uh, yeah, wow. I was young. I was young when I got my degree. That's awesome. Uh, so I, can we say favorite meal is probably around the, the uh, pastas and antipastas and uh, you know, I don't know. I'm married to a Brazilian. So, uh, you know, Churrasco is kind of on the on the on the menu usually at our house as well. Um, I'm so uneducated. What is that, Chinasco? What is that? Oh, it's a Brazilian steak. It's a special oh, they they prepare steak. Yeah. Amen. So awesome. I, I have a lot of favorite meals. We're foodies. <laughs> awesome favorite movie. Matrix. Oh, on so many dimensions. I we just, haven't heard that one, Johnny. I like that one. I, I just I love that series. It's 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 old, but it's great. Best concert you've ever been to? So many. You um, two when I was in my teens, Ooh. and then Peter Gabriel at Madison Square Garden was amazing. Um, wow! I recently saw Billie Eilish with my daughter. She was incredible. So I have a lot of concerts that I love. We love music at our house. So those are fantastic. Those are fantastic, Johnny. Bring us home on the. Um, 
on the charity, please. How about a favorite charity, Holly? Anything that you uh, feel you want to mention? Yeah, so I like local charities. I, I like to kind of see where my time, energy, money is going. So the one that we're supporting right now is Casa Marianella. It's a like refuge it's it's a it's a place where women and kids that are refugees that are seeking asylum in the United States can go and be safe and um, my daughter's doing huge amount of volunteer work there it's a really cool cool chair so we want to capture that in the show notes and since you said it so perfectly and I won't be able to actually spell it I'm gonna after we're done I'm gonna ask you to (laughs) text me with the correct spelling so we can put it in the show notes in case people want to donate Absolutely. And is it in mate? Is it in every major city, Holly, or is it local? Where is it's it? local. It's in Austin. Okay. I don't know that they have. They may have sister chapters someplace else. I can find out. Okay. Well, we'll we'll uh, we'll do the same. And again, like John said, we'll post that in. Uh, let me say my goodbyes first, and I'll have Johnny wrap us up. Holly, you are amazing. Um, I just love the different perspectives you brought to our audience today. I learned a ton and. Uh, I can't thank you enough for spending time with us today. And the, uh, you know, any openings you have on the Brandon Baster piece, um, the Kaplans are ready. Awesome. Well, thank uh, Cap, you. I told you she was amazing and how you pulled it off. And, you know, we're really, really grateful to have you. So thank you so much. Oh, gratitude is all mine. You guys are amazing. And thanks, thanks uh, everyone, for listening to another episode of The Revenue Builder. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. 